I try to answer questions before you have to answer, ask it. Mm -hmm. um, I try to give as much information about what I'm experiencing so that you feel comfortable enough to kind of open up to me. You know, now that's not to say that every black person is going to do that, nor, nor should they be required to. They can't. You know, they can't. You know, and, and quite frankly, it's a dangerous thing to do because the response back that you get when you open up like that is can be very scary. Yeah. You know, um, but with the, all that said, I try. I try, you know, and when you when people care about you and you care about them, you go the extra mile. You know, so for my white friends who I'm close to, I will tell them, hey, ask. Welcome to The Critical Path with Mary and Jason, a podcast about business development, company culture, and loving the place you work just a little bit more. This is episode 62. Can you believe we're already to 62? Where does the, where's the time gone? I don't know. So episode 62, and we're super excited today to have Nigel Chittick with us. Uh, someone that I worked with in my career, I have a lot of respect for, and this episode is called True Stories with Nigel Chittick. No pressure, <laughs> Nigel. A lot of pressure there. <laughs> no, no pressure. Nigel has been doing a sort of a true stories thing on LinkedIn, so you want to tell us a little about how that came about, Nigel? Yeah, so I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit of a complicated story. It kind of led from a couple different places. It started off with uh, going to NRCA, which is the National Roofing Contractors Association, and to a diversity meeting that was the worst diversity meeting ever. And I was just so, um, going into it, I was like, I was actually extremely excited and, you know, kind of pumped that my industry even had a diversity initiative, you know, so I was really excited about it and um, kind of to be let down the way that I, I was, was a, a pretty big gut punch. So your, your, expect, the, your expectations weren't met? Not, not even a little bit. So can you share with us why it was such a letdown? I think that's a good. Well, you know the the you know I don't want to bash them too much, Um, but I was disappointed with the lack of diversity within the diversity committee. Mm -hmm. Our industry, roofing specifically, is very white male dominated. You know, in in leadership positions, and then in leadership positions, Um, the statistics that they gave me: eighty nine percent white male owned, eleven percent Latino. Mm-hmm. or Hispanic, two and a half percent black, and then one percent other. Mm-hmm. Except for if you do the math, 89 and 11 is 100. Yep. <laughs> okay. So I don't know where this, where the rest of us come into play, but I suspect that black ownership is less than two and a half percent. One thing that I see about the, the actual field workers in roofing mm-hmm. is that you mm-hmm. have tons of minorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the people who are actually doing the work are, are black. They are, are Hispanic. Uh, but when you get into the leadership positions, very little. You don't, you don't jump into ownership or leadership when you're a minority, specifically. And I'll, even, I'll even argue that in roofing specifically, we don't have a lot of black people on the roof. We don't, you know, we are, our trade has gone in the last 25 years. I would guess, they say, the NRCA says that it's 56% labor force Hispanic. Hmm. I would say that it's probably closer to 80%. Since the last time we worked together, I moved to Southern California. <laughs> oh, I was and, aware of that when you went. Yeah. And I were, you know, so in the, in the last 10 years, I've worked everywhere in the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Washington, Oregon, Southern California, and California. I've done projects everywhere. Working with some of the largest roofing contractors on the West Coast. And I will tell you flat, 
all of them <laughs> will tell you that at least 70% of their labor force is Hispanic. Mm -hmm. I talked to the, uh, the, the union, the roofing union down here in Southern California, and they have about 700 men in the hall, less than 20 of them are black. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's probably indicative of all different cities across the country. It, with the exception, yeah, with the exception of maybe the South, mm -hmm. where you have a higher black, black population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but with, even within all of that information, I just find it hard to believe that uh, an industry as big as ours, mm -hmm. in which we are constantly being told, as a rep, I'm constantly being told, Nigel, do you know where we can find more men? There aren't enough people. Mm -mm. There aren't enough people, mm -hmm. right? And we pay pretty well, <laughs> you know, considering we don't need a much, much more than a high school education mm -hmm. and we'll take you if you got a felony. Yeah. Yeah. Why aren't more black people in this industry? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you went to the convention, you went to the mm -hmm. diversity. Yeah. And, um, and there was one black woman. Um, there was three Hispanic men, um, about 11 or 12 white women and the rest were white men. Mm -hmm. And there were about 22 people in this meeting, including myself. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like, you know, no disrespect to white women, but not all minorities are created equally. Yeah. Okay. And to me, my black male is much different than your white female. It is. Experience. It is. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I understand that the industry and construction as a whole looked at white women as minorities, and that's completely understandable. Mm -hmm. However, it's not the same fight. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for equity and you're having a diversity committee, that diversity must, must reflect something a little bit more than just the white woman. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So um, that was my dis part of my disappointment. Um, so as we moved through the meeting and doing different things, just learning where their agenda was headed mm -hmm. did not include me mm -hmm. or people that look like me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's really where my disappointment lies mm -hmm. and where I felt the need um, to write my true stories, mm -hmm. you know, because I felt like maybe people didn't understand why this is what, the way it is. And maybe somebody, I started off my true stories with, <clears throat> with a comment of, uh, if not now, when, mm -hmm. if not who, if not who, me, you know, mm -hmm. or if not me, who, um, and as I looked around the industry, I really found that I'm in a unique position. Mm -hmm. I'm an independent rep, meaning that I don't really work for anybody else, <laughs> you know, outside of the, the people that I represent and the contractors that I work with. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a boss per se. And I'm in, a, I'm in a position where I can speak my mind and not have a whole lot of things happen to me. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and I've been around for a long time. And so when I got to the point of figuring out that I had to say something, that it was within my power to do so, I wanted to start it off at the beginning. And I got into this industry at 17 years old, which is what my very first post talks about. Yeah. You know, and actually you, Jason, you said something in, in a comment to my post you said, um, how many strikes did you start with? Because I said, you know, I started off with two strikes. I was young and black. Mm -hmm. I didn't even conceive that or understand that when it was said to me. Mm -hmm. At 17 years old, I really, honestly, to this day, 
I would tell the guy who told me those to cut my hair, I thank him for that. Because at least you told me what, what the situation was. Mm-hmm. You could have just not told me anything and I would be frustrated and quit and moved on mm-hmm. rather than cutting my hair, even though cutting my hair was as traumatic in its own way as it was. Mm-hmm. So at least you gave me the choice. Yeah, at least we put the cards on the table. Right. right? Exactly. At, least, at least we know what game we're playing here. Ex- exactly. You know, so... I, re- I appreciate that person is still in my life to this day. And I, I still, I tell him, I appreciate you telling me <laughs> what the situation was, what my, my challenges and obstacles were going to be. Even if those, even if he didn't say it politically correctly or very, you know, whatever, at least it told me, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, so it started off at 17. And then from there, you know, a lot of, some of those, I just, I, I wrote really quickly mm-hmm. and other ones I took some time because they're sensitive you know, and um, it's interesting because I was actually on vacation that week. I was in, in, at, in Palm Desert with my fiance and, and my daughter and I would just go write one in the morning mm-hmm. and just sit there and cry, you know, and my fiance would be like, Nigel, what, you need to put that down and stop doing that. And, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, Look, like I gotta, I gotta do this. You're processing too. Yeah, you know, and uh, it, was, it was emotional for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was emotional for me. It was, it was very, uh, very difficult to put some of that on paper. It was very difficult to put some of that out there <laughs> and, not know, and not know what was going to come back, mm-hmm. you know, but I will give a lot of people credit. You know, I got a lot of phone calls from people with support off the bat, mm-hmm. you know, and just being like, oh my God, I never thought that you even went through that. You know, I'm so sorry. And, you know, guys that have, you know, like I said, I've been in this industry since I was 17 years old. So I've grown up. With a, with a lot of guys, mm-hmm. you know, literally as a kid yeah. coming up. So a lot of guys look at me as a little brother or as a son. Mm-hmm. And so they, now they're like, wait a minute, hold on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who said what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and how many, what percentage of those people in terms of mentors and, and leaders and people who have given mm-hmm. you opportunities, what percentage of those people are white? Because I, I believe a good all number of them are. All, <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, as, as a white man, it's easy to have the perception that my reality looks like your reality. It's easy yep. to have the perception that my traffic stop looks like your traffic stop. Absolutely. But it mm-hmm. is the, the naivety there. It is the privilege of that naivety uh, that causes mm-hmm. that to happen. Well, and mm-hmm. to make a comparison, and I totally agree with you that being a woman is completely different lived experience than being black. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a, a conversation that happened not that long ago that really resonated with me about being a woman was that uh, a woman had gotten into an argument with her, I don't know, fiance, husband, boyfriend, whatever, because the conversation came up that she would carry her keys in her hand in a certain way in a dark parking lot at night. And he Mm -hmm. felt that she was being paranoid, that she was being crazy. Mm -hmm. And she said, this is a thing that women do, that all women do. And he Mm -hmm. said, that's nuts, there's no way. And Mm -hmm. so she put a, a post out on Twitter and she said, if this is something that you've done, that you've taught your daughter, that that is a thing you think about, post about it. Mm-hmm. And it started all these conversations because a lot of men knew women were with them yeah, every day yeah. all the time. But the thing is, if you're with a man, mm-hmm. you don't feel as much like you have to make right. sure you're defending yourself. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, or, um, go ahead. Well, yeah, uh, one, uh, uh, a, one that uh, a woman told me about that I had not thought about personally until she said it was the elevator. I had always thought holding the elevator open was the gentlemanly thing for me to do. And yep. so she was like, no, I want you to get off the damn elevator and keep moving <laughs> so that I know you're not following me. And I'm like, oh, cool. 
cool, you know, but I would have never known that without the conversation, yep. you know, and I now first, and I want to thank you guys for giving me and, and other people this platform to have this conversation mm-hmm. because it starts with the conversation, you know, it doesn't end there, you know, but it starts there. And these past six months, a year for me, maybe it's that I've turned 40 and I'm finally growing up or confident or what have you, but I'm having more and more conversations about this even before George Floyd with my friends and my mentors and different people. And I'm, I feel like I'm at the point in my life where I have the confidence to say what it is I really want to say. And maybe that led into this movement that I'm in now with the confidence to say what I want to say publicly because I've already said privately <laughs> what I had to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but how, here we are in 2020, the year of, year of clear vision, and, and we're all looking at each other and saying, well, I'm finally seeing you. Mm-hmm. you know, I'm seeing that you're going through things that I'm not going through. Tell me about it. How can I help? When I think the magic thing that happens at 40 is you start to realize that your days are numbered, right? If, if you're a, a national average, then you're, you're at the 50-yard mark, yep. and you don't have time to screw around worrying about what everybody else thinks. It's more important mm-hmm. that you get your thoughts out there. It's more important that, that what you really believe is actually heard, and I think that, that it's a great opportunity to do that. And, well, and I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, I give credit to Jason Jones mm-hmm. because I think there's so much of this that we have talked about internally for so long. You know, we've seen the issues in the construction industry and we've talked about wanting to do something about Mm -hmm. it, but then it always comes down to like, there's some part of you, I think, as a white person that feels like if I, what, I'm going to go show up somewhere and be like, hey, black people, any black people want a job? Like, <laughs> that's, not, that's not a good way to interact with people. Yeah. So yeah. there's this feeling that you want to have these conversations, but you so don't want to say the wrong thing and cause more hurt than right. has already been caused. So instead, you just don't. You just don't have the conversation. And mm-hmm. what we realized so we were building this, our foreman program, and we started talking to Jason Jones about it and talking about how can we make more opportunity for black people in this program? Mm-hmm. And the things he started saying back were, you know, we're waiting to have these conversations with you. We're not, we're not hoping you don't talk to us about it. <laughs> having these conversations is how we move things. And the more that we started having conversations with different people, the more we started to realize that everybody just wants to talk about it, but everybody just needs a place to start. So I wanted to ask you a question. You've been in the industry a long time, 23 years. Uh-huh. What, what did racism look like when you started? So, so what did that look like in what, 90, is it 97? 97. 97. So uh, in 97, I was like 17 years old. I was graduating high school the same time as starting in the industry. And um, racism was, the industry was very extremely, extremely white. I mean, like, I mean, now we actually have a little bit of color, at least least there's some Hispanics, like, you know, roofing especially was so, so white. And um, I remember my first, the first time I went on a sales call, I went to go see a contractor by myself and I didn't make it past the threshold before they turned me around and was like, Mm-mm, we don't want what you're selling. They wouldn't let you in. Nope. Wow. Wouldn't even let me in the door. And now this is a product that they had already been buying. <laughs> so 
the company had just said, hey, Najee, you're the new guy. Just go out there and introduce yourself. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even introduce myself. Wow. Got back to the office, told a guy uh, who turned, turned out to be a mentor of mine. His name is Greg Monsier. Told Greg what happened. And he called that guy up and he chewed him a new ass. <laughs> and he was like, that kid is a great kid. You open the door for him. You let him give, a, give, his, give his pitch. If he says something wrong, then you correct him. But you do not do that to that, that young man. And then, to this day, Greg and I are still friends. And, and both of those people in the story are white. Yep. Right. And they were friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Greg and uh, the guys, his name's Alan. Greg and Alan are friends. And that's why he felt the, uh, the place <laughs> and the safety to tell him that because they had been friends for 30 years, still are friends. Mm-hmm. And um, that was my first real experience with, with that in this industry. Obviously, I'd experienced it other places. Um, but that was the first time where I felt like, wow, I, I, I got to be aware mm-hmm. of what's going on here. But that also uh, instilled in me the understanding that I had to be better. You know, that I couldn't be just the regular guy. Mm-hmm. I had to be the best person. I had to work. Like you said, I had to work the hardest. I had to be the most tenacious. I had to be, mm-hmm. I couldn't give up because if I gave up an inch, I would not get a second chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No mistakes. Yep. So, so I, I think though that you bring up a really good point with that story. That is the, the, uh, if Greg hadn't called out his buddy, mm-hmm. if he hadn't spoken up about it, if he hadn't yep. taken him to task, that implicit bias would just exist. Yep. It would just happen. And Absolutely. I think any, what, what we've really been trying to do is, is use this platform and use whatever sway we have in the industry to help mm-hmm. give uh, voice, to help, help amplify and do whatever we can to try to share those types of experiences because that never happened to me. Mm-hmm. I, I've been in situations like that. I can't tell you how many times something similar and, and that would never even occur to the person at the other side of the locked door. Right. And I think that when, when you have that experience, you're a 17 year old kid, you're, you're there representing a product that they've been buying. Uh, mm-hmm. They probably knew that you were coming or, or someone from yep. your company was supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And that implicit bias just shut it down. Yep. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing that happened, especially to a, a young person at that age. Mm-hmm. You know, like my daughter's 15, you know, so I, I look back on it now with different eyes. You know, at the time, it was just what it was. Yeah. You know? But now, now that I have a kid and I see where she's at mentally and I'm like, God, what did I go through? Mm-hmm. You know, how did that change me? You know, I have to, I have to, you know, I have to ask myself that question. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, but like I said, it made me work harder. It made me understand. The, the one thing that, that that instant taught me was also that it wasn't what I knew. It was also who I knew. Uh-huh. Absolutely. You know, and that moment, it, that, that taught me a lot because that's when I started to build relationships. Uh-huh. You know, truly build relationships and let people um, earn people's respect. Uh-huh. You know, Greg doing what he did really taught me that you're going to have to have people behind you that know you that are going to stand up for you from time to time. (laughs) Well, and I think that the the counterpoint to that though, is if you're listening to this and you are a white man, that you stand up for the people around you, that you make space, that you advocate. 
I think so much of the time, the answer you'll hear back is, well, I'm not part of the problem because I never shut the door in anyone's face. Mm-hmm. And that's great that you're not a person who would shut the door in anyone's face. But as long as there are people shutting the door in people's faces, somebody's got to stand up and say, don't do that, who actually has the ability it's, to do that. It's not enough to not be a bad guy. Right. You, have to, you have to actively work to be a good guy. You have to do mm-hmm. something through action to make any difference. The language I've been hearing recently that, that I think is, is really evocative is you can't be not a racist. You live in a racist society. You can't be not a racist. The only step you can take is to be an anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, exactly. And I, I saw, um, I was watching uh, CNN the other day, uh, the uh, um, United Shades of America, and they're actually up in Seattle. And they met one of the uh, founders of Black Lives Matter movement. And he was interviewing her and, and she was saying how, you know, um, it's, it's almost not enough to be an ally. We're looking for co- co-conspirators. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I was like, oh my God, that's, oh, that, that touched me right here. You yeah. know, because that's really what it, what it comes down to at this point. Yep. You know, I have tons of friends in this industry, tons of them. You know, I've been around for 20 something years. And I think that any of them would go to bat for me if I asked. If you asked. If I asked. But how many of them have seen the wrong mm-hmm. and then just not do it? or whatever. But now that this instance is coming up, I do see people being like, wait a minute, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not enough that I'm just been here doing what I'm doing my own thing. Mm-hmm. I got to do a little bit more. And I commend everyone that's, that's seeing that vision mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, black people are 13% of the population. Even if we all voted the exact same way, which we're not, yep. <laughs> we would not make a whole lot of change. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to need co-conspirators that look like you guys who are willing to maybe sacrifice some of their own privilege for the sake of the the bigger good. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that key is action. What what Mm -hmm. are you doing about it? What actions are you taking? While voting is super important, and I hope everybody Mm -hmm. who's listening is voting at least once. uh, (laughs) That's kind of the minimum. Yeah, the, the, the more important part is that you actually do something. So you, you mentioned the, the story with Greg and, and the interaction that you had there um, and the importance of developing relationships over the course mm-hmm. of your career. So what did you learn from specifically, what did you learn from key mentors in your career, in your life that were the most helpful? What were the, what were the biggest lessons that you took? The biggest one was just be a man of your word. Honestly, everything that I've done in my career has come down to my reputation. Mm -hmm. I haven't used my resume ever. Not a single job that I've ever had was because of that. Um, It's all come down to my reputation and what people believe that I'm going to provide. Mm -hmm. Um, And I learned that from Snyder Roofing. You know, I learned that from being for working for a company who believed their reputation mm-hmm. and lived, tried to live up to it every day. And that, that started from the top with Tim Gardner. Yeah. You know, Tim was a guy, is a guy, even though he's retired now, he's uh, just so, so straightforward and so consistent. You know, doesn't he, did he, if he says the sky is falling, the sky's falling, man. <laughs> like, like, you just know. And that's the person that I've really tried to emulate in that way. Um, the other person, his, he's actually up in Seattle too, Ken Stillwell. 
who's a, a product rep up there. And he's one of those guys that just treats everybody the same. Treats everybody with respect, you know, takes care of, of you could be the first guy, uh, the, the youngest estimator ever, or the president of Snyder Roofing. He's gonna treat you exactly the same. And, and you say that out loud, and it shouldn't be that much of an ask. It should, mm -hmm. You know, treating people with respect and treating people with, with uh, equality, uh, treating them the same with, with human decency, it feels like that should be just the starting block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's think about it just for a second. All we've been asking for is, is equality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, this entire movement mm -hmm. is all about equality. Yeah. Not more than, just equal. We watched a, a video of a, a woman and it was a bit of a rant and it was fantastic and powerful. And she said, uh, everybody's lucky that we're just looking for equality. We're right. not looking for revenge. Mm -hmm. And that was super powerful because, you know, I, I understand as, as well as I can where that's grounded. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that that ask, it's not inappropriate. It's not wrong. Well, I think that's part of what people's fears are. Mm -hmm. The fear of those who don't understand what black people are asking for is that we're asking for revenge. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the concern. The concern is that at some point we're going to all rise up and become little terminators and start killing <laughs> black people left and right. Little terminators. <laughs> you know, that ain't, that's not the plan. <laughs> you know, that is not what we're looking for. Yeah. We are looking for equality. Yeah. And yes, we will need some equity to get to equality yeah. because yeah. we are so far behind as a whole that we're going to need some help. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about Nigel Chittick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, I actually have this conversation with my best friend who is black yeah. and he, you know, he works in a different industry. He doesn't see it the way that I do. And, you know, and I'm like, look, man, like you got to understand not everybody's Nigel Chittick. Not everybody has the pedigree that I do of working for the, one of the largest roofing contractors in the, in, the, in the country, working for two of the largest manufacturers in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, my resume reads pretty well. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has that. When I think so I'm to, that, to the guy who looks like me, but isn't me. Yeah. When I think some, some of your privilege is that you're smart, you're talented, you're, you're super tenacious. And I think that, that everybody has different gifts. Everybody has things that they're good at. And I think that, that everybody's lived experience, it looks different than yours. So mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate that you're, you're sharing your stories, that you're using your uh, perspective to, to kind of give some voice to the people who don't have it. Um, so we, we talked a little bit well, about- we, we get to that. You know, one of the things that make my voice just a little bit different is I choose to be an American. I wasn't born here. Oh, really? I was born in the Caribbean, in Trinidad Tobago. Came oh, okay. to America when I was 10. and did not become a US citizen until last year. Really? Exactly. <laughs> so, so I choose this battle. I choose to be a quote unquote African American. Okay? So with that comes the choice of, of picking up this mantle of being black in this country. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't, Yes, of course, my, my people were slaves at some point, but we were dropped off in a different location. <laughs> so, you know, you know, there's some things there that are different. Yeah. You know, we've been having black prime ministers and, and different things. I didn't grow up in a place where, my, where people that looked like me were the minority. We were actually the majority. I didn't see a white person until I moved to Canada when I was 10 years old. Wow. 
you know? So I think I had, I think I saw one white girl before that when I was like in kindergarten, but <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that I grew up with. So as I've become a, a grown up and underst- I understand racism because I had to learn what racism was. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I had to talk to my black friends who are American and learn their experience and learn why they feel the way that they feel. So those same questions that you're, you're talking about, Mary, that you're talking about asking, I had to ask them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, well, why do you guys feel the way that you feel? Why is it that things are this way? Why do you, you know, so I'm, I am constantly learning African-American history. Yeah. Well, I, a lot of the people that we talk to, they weren't taught a lot of black history mm-hmm. uh, about, about yep. the, the lived experience and the history of what actually happened in America. Uh, right. You don't get that education inside of the public school system. It's the same education that I got. And mm-hmm. I sure as heck didn't get that. Uh, and so they're having to educate themselves as grown adults. I think, and I, I, I try to put myself in, people, in white people's shoes. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that it, this is a difficult conversation for you guys to have. Mm-hmm. You know? And, you know, my, my, my daughter's half white. You know, mm-hmm. my wife's white. So I, I, I can try to, and I grew up uh, in Gig Harbor, Washington, mm-hmm. where I went to high school. And I, I was the only black male in my, my sophomore year in the entire school. So I've been around this for a while, <laughs> you know, and in trying to understand where you, where you guys are coming from, I try to answer questions before you have to answer, ask it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I try to give as much information about what I'm experiencing so that you feel comfortable enough to kind of open up to me. Mm-hmm. You know, now that's not to say that every black person is going to do that, nor, nor should they be required to. They can't you all. <laughs> they can't, you know, and, and quite frankly, it's a dangerous thing to do because the response back that you get when you open up like that is, can be very scary. Yeah. You know, um, but with that, all that said, I try. Mm-hmm. I try, you know, and when you, when people care about you and you care about them, you go the extra mile. You know, so for my white friends who I'm close to, I will tell them, hey, ask. Mm-hmm. You know, buddy of mine asked me the other day, you want to be called black or African-American? Mm-hmm. Me personally, I don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with either one, <laughs> you know. But to me, because I was not born, I am not a African-American, I would mm-hmm. prefer black. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know? So I appreciate the question. There are no there are no wrong questions. Mm-hmm. And kind of going back to what you were asking before, Mary, you know, when's the right time and all this other stuff. Black people been waiting to have this conversation, mm-hmm. right? It's like, you ever send somebody a text message and because you, you haven't spoken to them a long time, maybe you're in an argument or what have you, you got a lot to say to them, but you know that they may not be in the place to have that conversation. So you tell them, call me when you're ready to talk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You stay ready. <laughs> Yep. Right. But yep. you want them to call because you want to know that they're in the right place to yep. have the conversation. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you guys, black people still are, are, have stayed ready. Yep. We're ready to have this conversation. But that's what we're, we're hearing. We're waiting for you to come to us and say, we as white people are ready to have this conversation. Well, mm-hmm. I, I think one of the most helpful things for me that, uh, that I've heard thus far was from Jason Jones, where he said, if you're a white person and you want to have these conversations and you want to find out what mm-hmm. you don't know, uh, if you lead with, 
I'm coming from a place of ignorance. There, there's stuff that I don't know. I'm probably going to get it wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. That is such a powerful statement for the reason that, that you're, you're kind of showing your neck. You're saying, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do stuff wrong. I'm going to get it wrong, but my, my mm-hmm. heart is in the right place. Help me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, absolutely. It's, it's so hard to, to just shut that down. It would be so hard to, to get that negative response in that situation. I have a, a buddy of mine out here in Southern Cal, a contractor, had that exact same conversation. Called me up after one of my posts, I think, and said, hey, you know, um, I, I'm white, obviously. I don't know what you've been through, but I respect the hell out of you, and, and I've always appreciated you, and I want to understand. Let's, can we have a conversation? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Where would you like to start? <laughs> you know, and that's really how it goes. Um, I think the other thing that I, I would like white people to take away is that black history didn't start with slavery. Mm-hmm. Guys, we got to go back to before that. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand what slavery did to African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we, we all know now, now that we're in a civilization that understands psychology and psychiatry, we understand that PTSD and anxiety can be passed along to children and through generations. Mm-hmm. But what's more, uh, more tragic, what's more, more uh, 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 traumatic than slavery? Absolutely. Okay. So when you take that information of this, this, the person of our forefathers going through that experience, and passing that on from generation to generation. And we, we as, as the African-American community do not necessarily subscribe to therapy mm-hmm. as a whole. Yep. And nor could, you know, a lot of us couldn't afford it <laughs> until, until recently. So when has this trauma ever been addressed? Mm-hmm. Never. So, in, you know, and I say, so when you start to look at that trauma, when a policeman shines a light in your face, and is aggressive with you and you have anxiety or PTSD, you may respond to that stop differently than a person who has had a very privileged experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you know, so you might look at that guy who, why is he being so jumpy? Why is he? Cause he has anxiety. Why do you think he <laughs> watches TV? He yeah. knows what's out there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But even without that, mm-hmm. He's already an anxious person. He suffers from PTSD and anxiety. I do. I, I, I do personally, right? So I know what that feeling is like, and I'm on my medication, and I do what I have to do. So, but at the same, and I'm one of the, that's one of the good ones, quote unquote, right? <laughs> we'll say high functioning. Yeah, you know. So I, I know how that stressful that moment is when a cop stops you or when he's behind you for, six miles, you know, or you're going to that job interview and you see a Confederate flag in, in the parking lot or, you know, what have you, like those are, it's, are things that raise stress and anxiety that may make people act a little bit out of character, mm-hmm. you know, so. So when, when you started, you shared the story about uh, being 17 and kind of getting shut down at the front door. Mm-hmm. 23 years later, you've, you've seen some stuff, you've been through stuff. Uh, and being in SoCal, frankly, I don't know how you get any work done. Uh, <laughs> but, but that aside, what is your perception of, of how racism has changed, if at all, over time? Um, it's become more covert. Mm-hmm. You know, more and more covert. 
um, it's it's microaggressions now. You know, it's it's all oh, your hair is this way, or you shouldn't wear your clothes like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's little stuff now. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, or at least at least on the west coast it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you go to the south, they, it's probably a little bit different. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but that's how it's always been. You know, in, in me and my friends, we've always kind of joked. How do you like your racism? Overt or covert? If you go to the South, you go and get it, get it over. Yeah, covert. covert. So, you know, is it better to know that the, that, that person hates you? Mm-hmm. Or is it better to just not know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so that's how you, you know, how, how do you want to deal with it? <laughs> you know, right. so to answer your question, I don't think racism has, it hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Or it, the, the level of it hasn't changed. It's just designed itself a little bit differently. It's just a little bit more hidden within the structure. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'll give you an example. I had, a, I, I was, I, I took an interview, a phone interview. And during the conversation, I said I was black. And I could tell the person's voice changed. Later on, I found out that I was told that um, I didn't fit the corporate structure. that my resume was perfect, but I didn't fit the corporate structure. Based on what? Mm-hmm. Based on what? Mm-hmm. On, a, on a five minute phone call? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it, it's a really good uh, segue though, because you were talking about what can you do? When you start talking about what is that, that we can do or what you can do is really to get involved, to really take this from the level of uh, being an ally or being a uh, 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 it's not my issue to being an anti-racist and being a co-conspirator and really you know being active in putting uh, feet to pavement mm-hmm. and making something happen anything happen mm-hmm. you know because anything is better than what we've had now <laughs> yeah. you know everything is a step forward you know it truly is and um, everything that I'm trying to create at least within my industry, is literally just to take that first step. You know, because the, the first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem. Mm-hmm. So until my industry can admit that it has a problem, mm-hmm. we have not met the first step yet. The other day, um, a guy, I called a, an architect actually up in Seattle to follow up on a project. And we, him and I were talking, and I, somehow we started to reminisce about all the jobs I did in Seattle back in the day, and blah, blah, blah. He's, he's kind of an old school guy. And one thing led to another, and he says, you know, uh, we got to get some people in here to do some more presentations because we have so many new architects, so many young architects that are just coming in, and we're recruiting so many more. And I said, okay, great. I said, well, where are you recruiting from? And he says, you know, University of Washington, SPU, all the local guys, you know, you know, the big schools. I said, well, are you recruiting from HBCUs? And he said, what's the HBCU? <laughs> what, said, is, well, what is HBCU? HBCU, HBCU. A historically black college or university. Okay. Okay. Now, what they're mainly in in the South and through the Midwest a little bit because there was those were the schools that black people went went to during segregation. Yeah. All right. So, seventy percent of black professionals come out of HBCUs. HBCUs are where. Uh, the Fortune 500 companies go to recruit their black talent. Mm-hmm. Okay, but most people on the West Coast barely know who they are. Mm-hmm. But yet we have companies like you know whatever going out there recruiting 
and have a diversity initiative within the corporation, but yet they don't know what an HBCU is. Mm-hmm. So where are you recruiting from? Mm-hmm. Are you just going to the regular school who has a 4% or 6% population of black people? Mm-hmm. So then you go to that to Stanford or one of these schools that has such a small population of black, well, then it's really hard for you to find that black talent. Mm-hmm. You can't find the right guy or right girl within that small pool. But if you went to a school where it's all black, chances are you'll find a little bit better talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least somebody that fits your profile. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is what you can do is to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. And well, stop and- going to the same well that you've already been going to to get your talent. Mm-hmm. So the, one of the, the pieces that you'd shared earlier had to do with um, being an ally is not enough. Being a supporter to, to cheer for you is not enough. It, it means that you have to actually do something outside of the ordinary that you wouldn't normally do. Right. And I think in terms of improving diversity in the industry, you can't just say, well, yeah, it's great. If you know the right candidate comes along, I'm going to support that. Mm-hmm. You have to actively take steps to go seek people out. And it's not that it's a precondition that you have to be black or minority uh, to get nope. the position. But like you're saying, where are we looking? Mm-hmm. Who are we asking? What kinds of questions are we asking? Uh, mm-hmm. Because the way that we've been doing it hasn't been working. Right. To, well, to well I mean, you know, it's easy to say, hey, you know, what? I went to University of Washington. I'm going to go get me a, a kid from University of Washington because I know that they're, you know, for right or wrong, they have the same experience that I had and I'm going to be cool with them because we're going to have to work in, a, in this environment together. Mm-hmm. That's great. But how does that change the structure of your corporation? by having a more diverse group of talent, what, how, what, what kind of company will you have? Yep. So I would, I, would, I would venture to say your company is gonna be stronger because it's gonna be more diverse. Your Absolutely. Com- your competition is gonna be full of all people who look and think like you do. Right. Right. And the more that you can get different ideas from different mm-hmm. tables all mm-hmm. inside of your crew, mm-hmm. you're much more likely to come up with an idea or think of something that your competition didn't. Absolutely. Problem, problem solving is better among diverse teams, and that's diverse in every way. The more different you can get the people in the room, the better solutions they're going to come to. Absolutely. What's happening isn't happening to your people. It's happening to mm-hmm. our people. And even though we have to take a step back and recognize we don't own all of that pain, it's our people. And black history isn't black history. It's our history. It's the history of the place where we live and the people that are our neighbors and the people that are us. It's the mm-hmm. history of all of us. And mm-hmm. I think that the, the quicker we can start looking at what's happening to people as what's happening to American people and what's Absolutely. happening, what those histories are is American histories. And I think the more that we can see it that way, it will help us. And it's not about erasing the differences. I think we should celebrate our differences because they're awesome, but we should embrace those differences and understand that those differences don't make us two separate people. Oh, one I, people. I love history. I love my, the fact that I'm black, I love the fact that I'm from the Caribbean. You know, that's one of the reasons why it took me so long to become an American. I love the fact that I was Trinidadian, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I also respect and love the fact that you're white. You know, I love the fact that my brother-in-law is Puerto Rican. <laughs> you know, like those are things that, that, that for me, our differences are awesome. Yep. You know, and they are to be celebrated. And, you know, and I'm not trying to take, tell anybody, you know, you can't think that being white is cool. Mm-hmm. I just don't want you to think that being white is superior. Yeah, uh, 100%. <laughs> you know, that's where it comes from. Just like, you know, I'm not saying that black lives matter more. Mm-hmm. I'm saying black lives matter. 
And in fact, that's a, that is a story that I'll tell you before we wrap up. Yeah, go yes, for it. Please do. I, I, had a, I had a conversation with a friend and, and I said, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, and I was in a really bad place that day. And I said, and I said you know, this was like maybe like right after George Floyd got killed. And I said, you know, um, we were having a conversation. I said, you know, of course, Black Lives Matter. And, and he kind of hesitated. And I could tell just in the conversation, just in that, I said, you know what, what do you hear? when you hear me say Black Lives Matter, what do you want to respond with? Mm -hmm. And he says, I want to respond with my life matters too. I said, that's awesome. However, I never said that your life didn't. Mm -hmm. All I said was Black Lives Matter. Not Black Lives Matter more, not Black Lives Are Better. I said, Black Lives Matter, period. I said, what's wrong with that in that context? He said, well, in that context, nothing. I go, well, that's all I've been saying. I would put yeah. this out to you too. Mm -hmm. If uh, so, what we do in in our day to day work uh, that's not on LinkedIn is we help construction companies grow up. So mm -hmm. we we provide development support and targeted training to help people do things better. So mm -hmm. if you know of if you know of any uh, uh, folks that you're aware of who need a little bit of help, and sure. whether it's reduced rate or free or mentorship or what have you, we're here and we're happy to help as well. Okay. Yeah, I will uh, definitely be reaching out to some guys and let them know. One of my best friends, he uh, just became a union electrician. Okay. You know, so uh, hopefully in the next couple of years, once he gets his skills up and, and he gets ready to move on, I'm already talking to him about, hey, you need to start your own company. Yeah. You know, don't get into the, into the idea of, oh, I'm going to work here and just do whatever. No, you need to do your own. Yeah. Because that's how we grow you know, African-American participation. That's how we grow the industry. You know, that's how you get to be having, the, you know, a big union shop that's black owned. It's got to start with us. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, um, you know, I, I know some people talk about like, you know, the white savior complex and all that stuff. You know what? We need, we, it's not about being a savior. It's about helping. It's mm -hmm. about scooting over and making room. Yeah. Point. Right. It's about helping. It's about grabbing. I didn't get to where I'm at without the assistance of the Tim Gardeners and different people who grabbed me by the hand and literally forced me to do different, different things. It, it, like I said, it, sometimes it takes a little bit more than what you would do for somebody else, mm -hmm. you know, but if you care and like you said, you want to create the space, you're going to do that extra effort. Yeah. Got it. hundred percent. Well, what else? Uh, well, so I know there was some talk on LinkedIn that you have thought. So, well, so we should whether, just wrap up. Well, I was going to just oh, point yeah. to it. Oh, go for it. So there's some talk uh, on LinkedIn. Edit. Yeah. I'm don't, editing it. Don't interrupt the, the major <laughs> audio engineer when she's talking. So there's some talk on LinkedIn that you had thoughts of a podcast or a book or something along those lines. Do you have any further thoughts about that? Is there a place you would direct people if they want to learn more or let you know they're interested? Um, not quite yet. <laughs> it's early. Um, I'm still formulating what my plan is going to be. This is my first podcast type experience. Mm -hmm. So, um, so thank you for giving me that opportunity to get that feel. Um, it probably will be some kind of podcast thing, but I'm also trying to really focus on bringing black people into the roofing industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want uh, telling stories to take away from that necessarily. Yep. Um, cause, like, cause like anything, I want to do the work. Yeah. You know, and I want to be able to, to, for the work to speak for itself. And right now, the most important thing that I feel uh, that I need to be doing is to get uh, parolees the opportunity to join the roofing industry. Mm -hmm. I think that is my number one focus. 
Um, my number two focus is to get internships and uh, guys and girls coming out of HBCUs opportunities within our industries, whether it be at the architectural level, the GC level, or the, or the specialty contractor level, or even consultants. You know, um, there are so many opportunities that our industry, roofing and construction as a whole, just really need to uh, need to work on. And at the end of the day, yes, we have a diversity and a racial problem, but more than that, almost more than that, we have a networking problem. Because mm-hmm. 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 yep. you so just don't know people. <laughs> if people. Yeah, if people want to be involved in that, uh, should mm-hmm. they just find you on LinkedIn or do you- I'm on LinkedIn, um, Nigel Shittick, N-I-G-E-L-C-H-I-D-D, as in dog, dog, I-C-K. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, find me there, uh, or you can email me at Nigel, N-I-G-E-L, at 7source, S-E-V-E-N-S-O-U-R-C-E-U-S.com. All right, and I'll put those links in the show notes. So if you're looking to help out with what Nigel's working on, please get a hold of him. Well, it's been uh, great having you. So you can find us. You can find us. You're all, you're all, uh, you don't have an outline. Where am I? So you're lost What's happening? (laughs) You can find us at www.rkwayfinding.com. You can find us on doing stuff with orange juice. Not a thing. Not a thing. That's not a website we have. All right. (laughs) But you can find us at the Critical Path, Mary and Jason. No, I'm sorry. The Critical Path Podcast. I'm going to edit this. www.thecritical. You always say this part. You made me say it. Criticalpathpodcast.com. And on LinkedIn, Jason Surgeon, Mary Surgeon, Arcade Wayfinding. And on Twitter, but we're boring there. We only post super boring. Super boring. Yeah, so it's been great having you, Nigel. I uh, appreciate you making the time for us and uh, everybody else. Yeah, I'm going to have my work cut out editing this one. We're at what, like an hour and a half? <laughs> Watch for it. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. I, I hope you guys have me back once I get something a little bit stronger to talk about and promote. <laughs> yeah, please. Please come back on. We'd love to see you. Uh, so in the, in the Me Too era, time's uh-huh. up. And, and all of that, uh, there was this kind of push against trusting women. And, uh-huh. and there's kind of this, this counterforce in play where you know, we can't necessarily trust women. They're going to abuse this power. Uh, mm-hmm. Therefore, you know, how do I even know what to say? How do I even know what I'm allowed to say? Because anything I say could be taken wrong. Yeah. Like, like, like women have this power that they can use over you anytime they want and you don't know what they're going to do with it. Right. Welcome to the party, boys. Right. So, <laughs> so then there was this really great litmus test that, that came out on Twitter or something. And it was, before you say something to a woman, especially in a professional setting, uh, ask yourself, would I say this to Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. uh, you, you should smile more. Would you ever say it to that man? Right, right, right. Uh, those pants make your butt look big, right? Uh, give, give him a little pat, you know? <laughs> you would never say those things to Dwayne right. Rock Johnson. Would you give a high right. five to Dwayne Rock Johnson? Absolutely. Yes, you would. Right, absolutely. When, when it's well-timed, yes. And I think that, that you know, a similar sort of situation could be applied here where we're talking about the way that you wear your hair or the mm-hmm. way that you dress, or the things that I would say, would I say it to a man who's like three times my size and could crush me, and I actually respect the hell out of, <laughs> uh, would I say it to that person or not? And, mm-hmm. and if I don't pass that test, 
Yep. And even come out of my mouth.